Uh, number four, 316, is Joel. I love that one. That's the lion roaring in Zion. That's a picture of the prophetic word of the Lord. Now, would you write next to this, and we're going to hit this really significant in second weekend. 1 Corinthians 14, verse 31. This was a main pastoral strategy for Paul and his churches. He says there, I want you to all prophesy. It's not meant for Chuck Porter and Ben Goodman. It's not an isolated territory. I want you to all prophesy. Why did Paul say that? It was very pastoral. In order to prophesy, what needs to happen? Help me, church. What do you need to do in order to prophesy? you got to really seek God, number one. I'll I, I tell you why. I get ready to do a presbytery. You ask those guys that do presbytery. You're going to prophesy publicly in front of people you don't know? You ask Keith Hazel what he did, who was the number one guy I would bring in. You ask, he, he's seeking God like he's never sought God. He's praying in tongues like he never prayed in tongues. I would see Keith and Rich Gow, Jim LaFoon, getting ready to do presbytery at New Testament Church, and they're back there. They don't care what you think. They don't care what it sounds. They're getting in flow. They're getting in revelation because they're getting ready to prophesy. In order for you to prophesy, Bob, and you need to prophesy, you got to seek God. not trying to put any pressure on you, brother. Prophesy tomorrow. Be good. In order to prophesy you're probably going to have to confess sin. Amen? Just to get the pipes cleaned out. In order to prophesy, you've got to be filled with the word of the Lord. And Paul says, I want you to all prophesy so that you all may learn. And in the Antioch church, there was a prophetic roar that took place every time they gathered. And it was the word of the Lord. It was the word of the Lord. I want you to all prophesy. I go to churches, spirit-filled churches. It's amazing how much prophecy's dried up for all kinds of reasons. God does everything by his word. When actually uh, Mike or myself get up, it's a kind of a prophetic thing you're doing when you actually preach. Now, here I've come to this very basic, simple conclusion. We're all prophetic whether we like it or not. How many of you claim to be followers and believers in Jesus Christ? All right. You are therefore a spokesman for Jesus Christ, both in lifestyle and words. You are prophetic. So as long as you're prophetic, why don't we go from pathetic to really prophetic and really come into a place of profound prophetic declaring of the word of the Lord in lifestyle and in words? There was a strong prophetic release in Antioch. And number five is Exodus 3.16. And that's in the framework of Moses' call by God to go back to Egypt and rescue lost people. A church that is filled with the grace of God has a passion for evangelism and for outreach. It's not going to just go vertical. It's going to go horizontal. It's not going to just get consumed. Many charismatic churches have done this. They've gotten so deep, they got disappeared. 
You get so caught up in certain things, and you lose sight of the fact that there are lost people all around us going to hell that need to be rescued out of Egypt and set free. And so Paul is in Tarsus. Barnabas sees this incredible thing happening, exploding in Antioch. And here's what the Bible says in Acts chapter 11. Uh, And considerable numbers were being brought to the Lord, verse 24, 25, and he left for Tarsus to look for Saul. Now, you got to love Barnabas. He says, wow, something special is happening here in Antioch. And then he gets this word, evidently, from God, i got to go find Paul. What in the world happened to that guy? It's been eight years. I know we sent him to Tarsus. And so here's what it says. Barnabas leaves Antioch, does that 90-mile walk to Tarsus area, And it says, and it came about that for, no, excuse me, verse 26. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. Now, the idea of that phrase there, when he had found him, it took him a while to find him. He was really hidden. And you can just see their reunion after eight years. And Paul sees Barnabas, brother encouragement coming. There's an embrace There's tears of joy. Paul, you got to come and check this church out. Paul, you're a fit. And he goes to Antioch for one year. This is 45 AD, middle of 45 to the early part of 46. And he teaches the church there for one year. What I want to emphasize again is this is Paul's first real experience with church life. For Paul, this is normal. The grace of God unleashed for Paul is normal. Manifesting in worship, presence, Holy Spirit, outreach, power, love, giving. It's a church filled with grace. Jerusalem, meantime, is in famine. Very significant here. If you read the book of Acts, the Jerusalem church is always struggling because it had a mixed message. Please hear me. God had no intention exporting to the world the Jerusalem gospel, as it were. He does want to send out from Antioch apostles of grace, loaded with grace, and go save the world. Antioch went out by revelation. Jerusalem went out by persecution. Jerusalem is suffering with famine. They were always just getting by. Boy, there's so much I could say there. Churches with a mixed message of gospel and law, survival at best, just getting by. Never a sense of really exploding into the full purposes of God. You don't want to be a survivalist church. You want to be a church that advances. Advances what? Vertical relationship with Christ, horizontal exporting of the kingdom of heaven. God wants to rock this region. Even You have no idea the full impact God really has in his heart for this region that can happen through an Antioch apostolic church filled 
with grace. So Paul's there a year. All right, word comes. Agabus, a prophet, releases this word about a famine coming. And so what they do is they prepare for the famine and they take up a love offering and they take this love offering after Agabus' famine, a great famine all over the world, and this took place and then the disciples put this love offering together and they're going to send it down to the brethren living in Judea, Jerusalem, who are coming under the real brunt of this significant famine. And this they did, sending it in charge of Barnabas and Saul to the leaders in Jerusalem. This is second visit now to Jerusalem. Now I want you to look at the last verse in chapter 11. I want you to look in the last verse of chapter 12. The last verse of chapter 12 says, And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had fulfilled their mission, taking along with them John, who was also called Mark. Here's my point. Now, I'm talking about preparation. I want you to think of the word preparation. I want you to think of the equipping that God is doing ongoing in Paul's life for his ongoing, soon-to-be-released first apostolic trip. Paul and Barnabas are in Jerusalem during the events of chapter 12. Chapter 12, for me personally, over the years, I have preached a lot from chapter 12 because I love chapter 12. It's the story of two men. They were raised in a fishing environment. They were both called at the same time by Jesus to be followers of him. They were both married. They were both in the upper room of John 13. They were both there in the room when Jairus' daughter gets healed and raised from the dead. They were both there on the Mount of Transfiguration. These two guys were both in the upper room of Acts 2 and got filled with the same Holy Spirit. They're both members of the same church. They both are married, and they both, no doubt, have children. They both have to deal with a common enemy, Satan, through a human vessel called Herod. James is the first one arrested by Herod, and his head is removed by a sword, and he dies. Now, the church had been praying, but he dies. Herod, realizing that pleased the Jews, proceeds to arrest Peter. And Peter's in prison, totally convinced he's going to have the same thing happen to him that happened to James. He's got 16 soldiers guarding him. He's got walls this thick, totally locked up. He's got chains around his feet and around his hands. In the meantime, the church has still got that prayer meeting going. Guess who's in the prayer meeting? Peter, excuse me, Paul and Barnabas. Paul is watching this incredible drama play out. He's joining with them in united faith and prayer. Oh, God. And, And so Peter, by the way, the night before he's to die, is doing what? He's sleeping. Somebody say rest. Somebody say this boy's relaxed. This, he's not trying to make anything happen. Hello? Not by might or power. And so he's asleep. That would be like 
if I were to say to Luke, tomorrow, Luke, you know, you're going to lose your head by the sword. Have a good night rest, son. <laughs> Praise the Lord. Without, without sleeping pills or whatever. You know the story. Chains fall off. Doors open by themselves. Soldiers go into a deep sleep. Peter doesn't really believe it initially. He thinks he's dreaming. Finally walks out onto the street, comes to his full awake place. Wow, God did it. God set me free. He goes and knocks on the door of the prayer meeting. Servant girl answers. Ah! Slams the door. Goes into the prayer meeting with a report. It's Peter. Nah, it's his ghost. They're believing for deliverance, but they don't believe it. And then eventually he's reunited with that church. I want you to see his wife and his two children with tears of joy, wonderful embrace, wonderful love. But then in the back room is another wife with two kids. What do you tell her? Well, darling, you just didn't have enough faith. Sorry about your luck. Mystery. One dies, one's delivered. Why didn't Peter lose his head? Why didn't James get delivered like Peter? Why, why, why? The mystery of God sometimes remains with God. And one die, here's what I believe, frankly, where Paul says the fellowship of sufferings and the power of resurrection. James was a seed called to die, releasing great fruit that Peter enjoyed. And Peter's call was different. Peter's call involved keys, which opened doors. And so he himself experienced God's door-opening supernatural grace power so that he could release it later to others. Peter is in the house. Paul and Barnabas begin a 40-day walk back to Antioch. At the end of chapter 12. It's not too difficult that they're doing a lot of conversing and they're doing a lot of fellowshipping and they're doing a lot of reflecting. Barnabas, wasn't that whole thing amazing? What's God saying, Barnabas? Look at James. Look at Peter. What do you think the Lord's trying to speak to us? Whether we live or whether we die is not the issue. The foundational issue for my life and your life is that God be glorified in our lives. And as they walk that 40 days to Antioch, both of them are inside instinctively beginning to share, you know, Paul, I got this incredible desire to go where Jesus has never been mentioned I have a desire to launch out. You know what, Barnabas? 
in my seeking time and my quiet time, I got that same desire. Hey, let's not talk about it to anybody. Let's just hold it between us and the Lord and see what God does. And so they got this, this thing going on in their lives about wanting to be sent out, about wanting to go and share this incredible gospel of grace where the name of Jesus is unknown. So they make their way finally to the Antioch church, give this incredible report, and we find ourselves in Acts chapter 13. And in your Bible, you probably have, and in your notes, if you will turn, if you will turn, uh, where, where are they? Uh, if you go to page 11, and I'm going to go about, uh, can I go about 10 to 15 minutes Okay, just to keep, um, let me find, where are my notes here? Okay, I want you to grab out page number 11, page number 11. And and it says there, this is now first missionary trip, so I want you to look at the context here. This is now 46, this is going to cover two years, 46 to 48 A.D. This is Paul's first missionary trip. It's the spring of 46, probably March. He's in Antioch, and let's go and pick up our story now, Acts 13, verse 1. Acts 13, verse 1. This is what an Antioch church does. It says there were there prophets and teachers. I want you to make note of that. Let me look at your notes here. Uh, is that on the back? Okay, on the bottom of page 10, Mike? Yeah. All right. I, I want you to look there, the first missionary church, Antioch, Acts 13, 1 to 3. All right, there's five key leaders. Now, just write these notes down. If, if you don't, I have them in mind. Again, I want you to just look here. There's no racial barriers. There's no cultural barriers. Those five guys there, Barnabas, Simeon. Simeon was a black man. Simeon was also called Niger. He was from Africa. Some believe he was the one that carried the cross for Christ. Okay. Then you have Lucius was actually Luke, the physician. At this time, a leader in Antioch. Of course, you have Paul. Then you have this interesting guy named Menean. Menean grew up in the court of Herod. He came from a very wealthy background. He was a total pagan. Uh, what Herod did was send his sons and his family to Rome to be trained in the Roman ways. Great orgies of sexual perversion appetite of foods. It's what is called Herod's birthday party in Matthew chapter 14. Menean was totally engrossed in pagan sexual perversion, gets powerfully born again, ends up somehow in Antioch, and he becomes a leader in Antioch. So you got five guys there. They are a combination of prophets and teachers. I want you to write down in your notes just word and spirit. A true Antioch church has an incredible balance between word and spirit. They really knew the word, and they really had the spirit. It's not either or. If that's all you have is the word, you will dry up. That's all you have is the spirit, you will blow up. If you have the word and spirit in balance, you will grow up, okay? And there are prophets and teachers. Now, you see what they're doing here. They're ministering to the Lord. All right, there's that priestly ministry going on corporately. See, that's why it's so exciting for you as individuals to minister to the Lord privately. Then you minister to the Lord publicly as a corporate body. 
It's really, see, a worship service on Sunday morning, everybody bringing their own fire, making a really big fire. Wow, that's an impacting gathering of God's people. So they're ministering to the Lord, and there's that priestly ministry taking place. Then out of that atmosphere of ministering to the Lord, a prophecy is spoken. It always happens. Why? Because as a priest, we're ministering to the Lord, getting God's heart, and now God's heart speaks, and it comes out as a prophecy. And so the prophecy in this particular instance is a word of confirmation of direction for Paul and Barnabas. In other words, they've been waiting on God. They got this private word of direction, but they're waiting for God's timing for it publicly to be prophesied, set apart Paul and Barnabas to the work to which, notice, past tense, I have called them. Now this brings up an issue. I'm not going to take a lot of time on this, but I have been concerned with presbytery prophetic ministry for the last 10 years because something's been lost. And in some situations, it has degenerated into a charismatic fortune-telling session. And why do I say that? Because true prophetic is meant to be confirming, not first-time information. When we did presbytery for the first time in New Testament Church in 1983-84, I got David Blumgren's book, them, them, I think we sent it down here. You may have had it. I don't know when you guys started doing presbytery. But presbytery and the power of it has everything to do with proper preparation. And the preparation has been lost. And so people aren't coming in having sought the Lord, having not heard the Lord. Okay, But you can all probably remember when... You guys did seek God, did press into God, and then the outside prophetic comes in and confirms the secrets of your heart and confirms the things that everybody knows. See, then it's really powerful. Then it's really cool. And then it's really awesome. So when it comes to direction, don't ever let anybody prophetic direct your life. Unless it's something you've already heard. I don't care if Moses comes to Chuck and gives me a direct prophecy for my life. I'm not going to move on that unless I first heard. I know I'm probably overstating that a bit. I'd probably listen up a little bit to Moses, but you, you get my drift. All right. Amen. Uh, we've gotten lazy, and, and then it becomes, becomes almost a sideshow. There's a measure of reality, and there's a measure of revelation, and there's even measure of life that takes place. But prophetically, and this is part of the problem with prophet, you're always jealous for the best. If you're going to do it, go for it. There were 10 things David Blumgren laid out in his book of preparation. Uh, sometimes you preach three weeks before the actual presbytery, and then you lay out. For example, somebody had to be in the church at least a year, or they couldn't receive presbytery. Why, why would they do that? Because when a, a, a wandering sheep in the area hears there's presbytery going on, they'll pop into the house and try to get a word for them. And they miss the whole point. It's, it's actually meant to be a setting in and a declaring of ministries in the house for people committed to the house. It's not meant... Well, anyway, you get my point. So they, they have this wonderful thing going on here in Antioch of confirmation of direction and so they're sent out. So that brings us to page 11. 
the years are 46 to 48 AD, they're going to go into this place called Galatia, which is Asia Minor. If you want to write next to the word Galatia for future reference, it's modern-day Turkey. That's where they went, Turkey. And they're sent out. And if you look at your map now, uh, if you look at your map, they're up there in Antioch. Now, Antioch is about eight miles from the harbor, which is called the, the Seleucid Harbor, okay, uh, in the spring of 46 A.D., and so you can just see this band of believers from Antioch walking with Paul and Barnabas. Now they got John Mark with them. John Mark is the nephew of Barnabas. He's about 25, 26 years old. What he is is the mule. Okay? Because when you do this kind of trip, you got to carry all your food. Hey, church, there's no McDonald's one mile down from Antioch. Get a quick burger and off you go. No, no. You carry all your food. You carry all your clothes. And so Barnabas and Paul, Paul is about 45 years old. Kind of old, actually, in that time. Barnabas, similar age. So they got this young guy who's the mule. He's carrying all the luggage, the suitcase and whatever. They come to the Seleucid uh, Harbor, and they pay fare to go to the island of Cyprus. Now, why did they go there? Well, they went there because that's where Barnabas is from. That's where he was born and raised. It's a six-hour sailing trip from Antioch to Cyprus. The Seleucid Harbor, by the way, is the choppiest harbor in the Mediterranean. Many veteran sea-going sailors got seasick in the harbor. It was that choppy. I don't know why. I'm just throwing that out. You don't have to necessarily remember that. But it's unlikely that one of them maybe got seasick before they even started. Bummer. Okay. So they make the six-hour trip to Cyprus, and they land on the easternmost uh, city, which is called Salamis. That's a very, very busy harbor. Ships from all over the Mediterranean exchange goods in the Salamis Harbor. Now, let me tell you a little bit about this island. It was famous for its copper mines. And when the Romans would capture people, they would send a lot of the young, strong, captured people to work these mines. The average lifespan of a slave in the Roman culture at that time was 25 years of age. They would go into those mines and never see the light of day the rest of their life, working the mines. So Paul and Barnabas begin a walk across Cyprus. They're going to primarily go to synagogues. Now this is fairly close to Jerusalem. And so here's what many surmised happened. Remember what I said, five times the Jewish synagogue beaten. There are believers who continue to follow the law who also meet in synagogues. And in the research, it is very likely that Paul got another beating on this trip. Luke doesn't record it. And his back is reopened. And he continues the journey. He comes to the capital of Cyprus, which is called, is it Paphos? All right, there's a governor there 
who's kind of interested in this message. So, Paul, Barnabas, and John Mark are there. And all of a sudden, this bogus counselor for the governor starts to prevent Paul from speaking. His name is literally Elamus, or Bar-Jesus, the magician. Now, here's Paul. you got to get this. you got to love it. This guy is now 12 years old in Christ. Many years hidden, filled with the Spirit, called apostolically on his first apostolic trip, and he's committed, he's serious, he's loaded, and he's filled. And he rises up. I love it. You son of the devil, opposer of Jesus Christ, you are blind. And he went blind. Somebody say, effective evangelistic outreach. (laughs) The governor is looking at this scene, and he's stunned, and he's shocked. And he ends up getting saved, along with, I believe it's his daughter there mentioned. But here's the deal. No, really, uh, not, not really a lot of Gentiles. It's Jews. Paul's called the Gentiles. So they decide to get on a ship from Paphos. And Paul says, I think we need to go and cross the Mediterranean and go to Perga and keep going on our trip. Barnabas says, I bear witness. John Mark's not quite sure. John Mark, after the beating, no doubt, of Paul, and after this incredible power confrontation with Bar-Jesus, John Mark's realizing, whoa, there's a whole lot happening here. He's getting a little bit nervous. Well, they get on a ship. It's very likely when they're in the harbor getting ready to sail that a veteran sailor said, oh, mistake. Not time to cross the Mediterranean in March. Most of us wait until May. Not March. Why? Ah, because of the winds. The Etesian winds. The Nor'easters. Here's what's going on, church. This part of the Mediterranean is the most dangerous part of the Mediterranean this time of the year. Many ships are at the bottom. Shipwrecked by what were called the Etesian winds. They had a special name to them. They're also referred to as sudden nor'easters. It's the same thing that got Paul in Acts 27. So guess what happens to Paul? Three times I was shipwrecked. Now, this isn't complicated. You've got to fit it in. Luke doesn't give us a full detailed account. Thanks a lot, Luke. <laughs> in order to have a shipwreck you got to have what you got to have body of water you got to have a ship and you got to start sailing march wrong time of the year so paul shipwrecked he almost drowned they don't even know how he got rescued probably a passing ship somehow but let me ask you a question if your back has just been open still bleeding and in the process of healing What does it feel like to spend 24 hours in salt water? A night and a day, he says, I've been in the deep. He comes to Perga, which is the port city of Asia Minor. Here's what happens here when he comes to Perga. John Mark says, I'm out of here. 
I didn't sign up for this. I'm going back home to mama. Very, very offensive to Paul. Why? Well, your back's open. You're really struggling. And now your mule's going home. It means you got to carry the cargo and you got to carry. Now, if you look at your map from Perga, you're going to go straight north to Antioch. There are 16 cities in the Roman Empire named Antioch. This is the main Antioch governmental center in that part of Galatia, Asia Minor. Now, from Perga to Antioch is 90 miles. But you go from sea level to like Denver, Colorado. That's about 5,000 feet. But here's the deal. It's the most dangerous road in the Roman Empire. Why? That time of the year, it was noted for its robbers and its thieves. Robbers coming out of a winter of almost starvation would prey upon the early spring caravans going on this road from Perga to Antioch, and they would kill you if they find you. They will rob you, strip you, kill you, and not blink an eye. This is what Paul's talking about when he says danger of robbers. This is what he means when he says danger in the city, dangers in the wilderness. Also, that road was a riverbed. This is what he means when he says danger of floods. Because in the mountains, if there was a sudden warm-up, snow would melt, and that road became a death trap, a riverbed, and many were swept to death because of the floods. What Paul and Barnabas would do is that they would walk at night whispering at most, not wanting to be heard, they would go off the main road about 200 yards and cover themselves over during the day and kind of hide out. And they did this for 90 days or 90 miles, which is about a two-week walk. Well, the Bible then picks up our narrative in Acts 13, if you want to look there. Acts 13, uh, they finally arrive in Antioch. See, from verses 13 to 16, there's a whole lot happening there. Shipwreck, what I just laid out. Uh, they finally come to Antioch, and they show up in the Sabbath day because Jesus said, go to the Jews first. So if there's a synagogue in the city, Paul's going to go there first. Now, what he's going to do is something like this. To a Jew, I am as a Jew. He probably put on something that made him look even more, I don't know, like a Jew. Anyway, when you go into the synagogue, it's a service, and Paul would be a stranger. Barnabas is a stranger. The leaders of the synagogue would recognize Paul and Barnabas as being strangers. They probably saw they were kind of old. And so after they do their synagogue thing, opening prayers, reading of Scripture, reading of the law, then they would point to these strangers... And they would do this quite common now. Brethren, do you have a word for us? You understand what the word apostle means? Sent one with a message. Paul's been sitting down during the synagogue service, bored to death. No life in the house. He knew exactly what was going on in that synagogue service. Now, there's two kinds of people in that synagogue. There are Jews, and then there are who? God-fearers. Gentiles. Now, who are they? They're seeking. They're seeking something. Many of them are burnt out on pagan idolatry, and they're seeking some kind of reality. And as far as they know, the only show in town 
is the synagogue claiming to represent this mysterious God. But I want you to see two Gentiles walking home after synagogue service. How's it going, Levi? I wouldn't be Levi. What's a good Greek name? I don't. Doesn't matter. How's it going, bud? He says, "Bummer." You know, I left the service last week, and my week's been hell on earth. It's like I feel worse after the service than when I came. I know. I have the same reaction. They keep reading this thing. Now, they have no clue on how the law works with flesh. They have no understanding how the law has a marriage with flesh and sin. Yeah, you know, last week the old guy was preaching about thou shalt not commit adultery. And for a week, that's all I've been thinking about is my neighbor's wife. It's like everything got stirred up. There's no answer. Everything got riled up. It's like it produces a desire for the very thing that I shouldn't be doing. I know it's a bummer. It's kind of a bummer of a church when you think about it. Rather than setting us free, it's like it's leading us into deeper bondage, condemnation, and guilt. So Paul's there now with Barnabas. And everybody's kind of half asleep because they just read the law and they're trying to avoid whatever that thing brings. And brethren, do you have a word? And Paul stands up. You better believe I have a word. And you have no idea what it costs me to get here. So listen up. But the first thing I want you to see with me now, because I'm totally convinced it happened. Remember fragrance? Remember presence? Remember grace. As soon as Paul stood up, something is released in the room. They don't have a clue. But that Gentile who was time to check out and take a nap because you're tired of hearing that condemning word, all of a sudden his eyes open up, he sits up, and he begins to get impacted by what he doesn't even know what we know as the anointing, the presence, life. And Paul the Apostle stands up and begins to preach. Now what you have is the first recorded sermon of Paul. So, Paul's in this synagogue. We're in Acts 13, verse 16. Paul stands up. The anointing of God's all over them. Presence of God begins to get released. In the audience again are Jews and God-fears. Combination of Jews and Greeks. Jews, of course, been under the law all their lives. Greeks, particularly if you just joined the synagogue recently, came under the law. But they have no understanding. They have no revelation, obviously, the dynamic that's going on there. And so Paul begins to speak. Now, what he does, starting with verse 16 which would be very typical, he does a historical kind of summary. Very similar to what Stephen did in Acts 7, only it's much shorter. And so Paul, he, he starts off with Egypt, bondage. He quickly goes into Samuel the prophet, verse 20, and gets into the king Saul. And then he quickly gets to David. The reason he quickly gets to David is because David's offspring is where he's going. And from the offspring of David comes one called Jesus Christ. What Paul is doing here literally in this message is getting to Christ as soon as possible. His message is Jesus Christ 
and him crucified. That is the core of what it's all about, presenting what happened. And I want you to write in your notes somewhere uh, next to Acts 13, say 27 to 29, off to the right, just write that day. And put it in quotes and circle it if you want. And let that be as a reminder because that was Paul's passion. What happened that day? It's not just what happened to Jesus. He died that day and he shed his blood. But what Paul wanted his converts to realize, what happened to you that day? If you can see what happened to you that day, that's the foundation of your victory. So Paul is preaching to this congregation in the synagogue, and he gets right to Jesus, and he says, verse 26, Brethren, sons of Abraham, family, and those among you who fear God. Jerusalem, they didn't recognize him. They didn't recognize the voice of the prophets. They found no ground, verse 28, for putting him to death. But then Pilate has him executed, And verse 29, and when they had carried out all that was written concerning him, they took him down from the cross and laid him in a tomb. Now, next to verse 29, if you want to put in your margin, Psalm 22, Psalm 88. That's for future reference. That's a description of a lot of what happened to Jesus on the cross, a prophecy being fulfilled, for example, in Psalm 22, where it says a bone will not be broken where he dies before they're able to break his legs. The reason they would break the legs is to promote sooner death because you could no longer lift up and catch a a, a breath. Uh, Through crucifixion, you actually suffocated. And so Paul is presenting Jesus Christ. Now, later on, he says in Galatians, he brings to their remembrance how Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. That was his message. Now, the more he starts talking about Jesus... The more he lifts up Jesus, the more he starts talking about the cross, what's happening is the anointing is getting stronger. The authority in the spirit is actually getting stronger. People begin to get affected, maybe not realizing what's happening, but this is an apostle in the fullness of apostolic ministry delivering the apostolic message of heaven called the good news of the gospel of grace. Then he goes, and it says in verse 30, But God raised him from the dead. Obviously, crucifixion was common. Resurrection is crucial. There's two great miracles. If you would put in your Bible, in your notes somewhere, you have two great miracles that distinguish Christianity from all other faiths. Incarnation and resurrection. Incarnation and resurrection. It's not that just Jesus died. It was who was on that cross that makes all the difference. It's whose blood was shed. Only his blood was counted worthy enough to pay the penalty of sin. It was that pure and it was that powerful. And so who Christ was, incarnation, the unique son of God, and then his death and burial and then resurrection. Now, Next to the word resurrection, write Romans 1, verse 4. What Paul is stating in Romans 1, verse 4 is, the resurrection is heaven's signature of approval to the death of Jesus. Basically, heaven saying, totally accepted, 
debt totally paid, well done, raised from the dead. Literally declared the Son of God by the resurrection of the dead. Are you familiar with uh, what's really interesting? Around the world now, they show this movie, the Jesus movie, movie, and they'll bring it to remote parts of the world. And uh, these natives will be looking at this for the first time, and it kind of tells the story. And then he gets to Jesus, and they're watching Christ heal people in the movie, casting out demons, feeding people, doing all these wonderful things. And then, because they have no background, they're kind of shocked and stunned at what happens during Passion Week. And then when they see him getting beaten, their eyes get wide and their mouth drops. When they see him actually crucified, many of these unsaved pagan natives get quite upset. Uh, There's no justice here. Why are they doing this? What is this all about? He's so innocent. He's so good. He's so pure. Why are they treating him this way? And then, of course, after the resurrection and then the explanation of what's taking place, I mean, they respond by the hundreds and thousands, no doubt, around the world at this innocent life offered up as a pure holy sacrifice accepted by heaven and the power of the resurrection released. So then Paul continues to expand on the resurrection, and we go down to verse 38. Now, I want you to really pay attention to verse 38 because you have a key word there. It says, therefore. This has really helped me in my understanding of God's word and God's truth. Always pay attention to that word like that, therefore. Sometimes you'll see a phrase, in order that. Sometimes you'll see a phrase, so that. In other words, it's a connect phrase. So what Paul is saying here is, because of the death, burial, and resurrection of the Son of God, Jesus Christ, therefore, this is what I can now offer to you. Now, by this time... The people in the synagogue are on the edge of their seat. The Gentiles in particular are feeling something in their heart that's kind of blowing them away. Hearts maybe even start to pound a bit. And a growing excitement. And so Paul says, now therefore, this is the implication of death, burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ. Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through him forgiveness of sins is proclaimed. Now, we look at a verse like that, and here's one of the problems that we deal with as veterans in the faith. Sometimes the most important words lose their impact over a number of years because of maybe familiarity And so the word forgiveness. But I want you to try to put yourself in one of those God-fearers' hearts for a moment. And you're guilty. And you're condemned. And you're burdened. And you got this barrier over you. And all of a sudden, you hear the word forgiveness. And it charges the atmosphere with a kind of anointed electricity. They're not taking notes like we are today. What happens is they actually begin to experience forgiveness. Can you see chains broken? Can you see heavy weights being blown away? Paul, in Romans 15, verse 18, if you would write that down, and you can look at it later, 
One of the major keys to his preaching ministry, Romans 15, verse 18. Uh, In that verse, he says this, I only preach what I back up with my lifestyle. That's all he's saying there. I'm paraphrasing it. As a result, the words that I speak have a reality to them, have an anointing with them, so that he says in Romans 15, 18, when I preach, the words of my mouth go out and they actually impact or impart to the heart of my listener what I'm actually saying. In other words, I'm almost bypassing their brain and not really interested at this point in giving them information. Paul could say, I have a bullseye on their heart, and I'm trying to impact and impart something to their heart. So when these Gentiles, God-fearers, are sitting there after being under the law, with this incredible guilt, condemnation, shame, they hear the word experience, uh, excuse me, forgiveness, but more important, they actually experience the reality of forgiveness. It is like creative. And their hearts begin to get set free. Uh, the condemnation is blasted away. The fear is destroyed. The guilt. How many of you could testify with me when you've wrestled with the sin and you're struggling and you've condemned yourself and maybe another fellow Christian has helped you to condemn yourself and you get piled on and you get piled on and you're buried by layers of whatever and then to discover the reality of grace, the power of the blood, the absolute openness of God to hear your confession and you receive in replace of guilt forgiveness. Does it feel good? Absolutely. Paul goes on to say, look at verse 39. In addition to forgiveness of all your sins, through him, everyone. Wow, all of a sudden, everybody in that synagogue realizes, hey, I'm part of everyone, so therefore that must be for me. Everyone who follows rules and regulations... Everyone who tries hard, everyone who really gets their act together, everyone who really pulls themselves up by their own bootstraps and gets their life and act together. No, it's really simple. Everyone who believes, puts faith in, trust in this incredible message that's coming at them, everyone who believes is free from Most areas of bondage in your life, is that what it says, is free from all things. Somebody say all. All things. So there's two words, forgiveness and freedom. Here's what I've discovered over 40 years trying to help God's people. They've embraced forgiveness, but they've stopped short of getting totally free. If you want to write in your Bible margin at that point, just put the name Lazarus. It is possible to have life and come out of the grave 
and be alive and still be covered with grave clothes and still bound. The gospel good news of grace is not only forgiveness, but freedom. But then Paul has a punchline which gets him into trouble. And it would happen wherever he would preach this message. Through everyone who believes or puts faith in this gospel message of good news of grace, you can be free of all things from which the law could not free you from. Instantly, some in that room, the hair bristled on their neck. They took immediate offense at what they just heard, primarily starting with the leaders of the synagogue, because their whole way of life is all of a sudden being challenged, just like Paul's way of life was challenged by Stephen. The Gentiles and the Jews who are responding in faith, what's happening in that meeting is demons are getting cast out, people are getting healed, people are getting born again, people are encountering Christ, People are experiencing forgiveness. People are experiencing freedom. So here's the culmination of the whole meeting. In verse 42, as Paul and Barnabas were going out, the people kept begging that these things might be spoken to them the next Sabbath. Isn't that a good response to a sermon? That would be like Mike Nelson can't get out of the building because they're saying they're begging Mike that these words continue to be spoken. There was such, why? Because there was such joy. There was such joy in the house. Now I want to contrast this gospel of grace with Hebrews 12. You don't have to turn there. Just write the scriptures down. Hebrews 12, 28, 29, 30. You'll find it later. When Mount Sinai is happening, and God comes down on the mount and gives Moses the law, it is such an awesome time. You know what the response of the people was? And they begged that no further word be spoken. That's the result of the law. Sometimes I'll kid, I called up Neil Silverberg one time a couple years ago. I said, Neil's a great comedian, by the way. I said, Neil, how'd your message go yesterday? He said, Chuck, they were begging that no further word be spoken. (laughs) Praise the Lord. And you know what can sometimes be one of the greatest compliments is that that hour felt like five minutes. And you just keep soaking it in and receiving it in. The life of God, the grace of God, the anointing. The people beg. Paul could hardly get out of the synagogue. Now, Antioch, the city of Antioch is about 15,000 people. The early converts, the, the new converts in that meeting, they met every morning and every night every day. And Paul would just start imparting truth, revelation, foundational stuff, who was Jesus, talk more about the cross. He would certainly talk about the Holy Spirit. They'd be getting filled with the Spirit of God. The meetings were spontaneous. The meetings were electric. The meetings were alive. And in six days, word spread through the entire city about what was happening. So the next synagogue service They couldn't really meet in the synagogue. Why? Look at what it says there. The whole city showed up. Somebody say effective outreach. (laughs) The whole city showed up and are listening to this incredible message that's bringing them righteousness, peace, and joy. 
And the only thing you're doing is bending the knee to a king. Receiving his kingdom of righteousness, peace, and joy as a free gift. Rooted and grounded in his love. A gift offered of forgiveness, salvation, freedom, and hope. And the whole city shows up. Oh, victory. The whole city shows up. It's too powerful. Too anointed. This incredible gospel of grace has nothing to do with your human effort. Has everything to do with the efforts of Christ. Has nothing to do with your performance. Everything to do with his performance. He did it all. He took the hit. And so Paul has the whole city show up, but there you see it now. Look at verse 44. The next Sabbath, nearly the whole city assembled to hear the word of God. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy. If Paul were here right now, and he were telling his story a lot better than I would. He says, you want to know a little secret about Stephen? And that day when we kill Stephen? Outwardly, I would say, ah, he's coming against the law and he's coming against the temple. That's all true. But you know, in reality, what was going on inside of me, I was totally jealous. Because that young man was getting people healed. He was casting out demons. He had a peace and a presence about him I knew nothing about. That's all I gave people was guilt and bondage and tradition and form and death. And Stephen gave him life. So the whole city assembles and those who were filled with jealousy began to contradict things spoken by Paul. They begin to blaspheme. Look at verse 48. When the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing even all the more, glorifying the word of the Lord. Many has been appointed to eternal life, believed, and the word of the Lord spread. But the Jews aroused devout women of prominence and leading men of the city instituted a persecution against Paul. Here's what happened to get to Paul. Second time, first time now, he receives rods. That, that word there, persecution, means he got beat by the rods. Three times I got rods. And he's driven out of Antioch. Now, here's the deal. I want you to write this down somewhere in your notes. Maybe it's in your notes. I forget. He's there four months. These Christians are 16 weeks old in the Lord. He's there for four months. He leaves behind a new church, no elders, no Bible. And they're there in Antioch dealing with whatever they have to deal with. All right, the next place he goes, if you look at your map, he's in Antioch number 15. He goes down to a place called Iconium number 13. Same pattern. Uh, there's a four-month pattern. He's there. There's a large synagogue, and he preaches the gospel there. If you notice in Acts 14, verse 5, And when an attempt was made by both the Gentiles and the Jews with their rulers to mistreat and to stone them, they began. Uh, they became aware of it, and they fled to the next city, and then it zeroes in on Lystra. What I want you to see here is hell responds with more fury. In the first church that started Antioch, he is beaten. 
In the second church he starts, he's only there four months, same pattern. They try to stone him. Trust me, stoning's worse than rods. Paul hears about this, he gets a bit alarmed and he flees. Uh, he's, a pos- he's an apostle, he's on the run. But he's leaving a church behind of new converts. And he's impacting their lives in a serious way. Now when he comes to Lystra, that's the third city. In Lystra, there's no synagogue. Let me tell you why. In order to have a synagogue, you've got to have at least ten families. 